Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining Climate Transformed. We're very excited to have with us Dr. Catherine Huff, who is Assistant Secretary at the Office of Nuclear Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy. Happy to have you here with us from Washington, D.C. Katie will be giving a presentation on what's next for nuclear, what are priorities concerning the Office of Nuclear Energy. Presentation will last about 15, 20 minutes or so, then we'll have a Q&A. And you can, uh, everybody who's watching live can, uh, can join our conversation. Just use the chat function on Zoom and you can actually join. Katie, you have an impressive, truly impressive career in nuclear. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a PhD in nuclear engineering with a focus with your research focused on modeling and simulation of advanced reactors and fuel cycles. You worked as an assistant professor at the Department of Nuclear Plasma Radiological Engineering at the University of Illinois, right? That's right. At the American Nuclear Society, you were a chair of the Fuel Cycle and Waste Management Division. And this is not even half of your professional career. And you've served the Department of Energy for a while now and now leading the Office of Nuclear Energy as the assistant secretary, right? That's correct. That's right. Well, welcome. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you here. Indeed, you have a presentation prepared, but maybe just to kick off, can I ask where your interest in nuclear is coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I was a physics student at the University of Chicago, and I I was really excited about physics in general, and I was aware of nuclear energy, but it didn't seem to me that that was my path until I really... I recognized that with physics alone, pure physics, large hadron collider type physics, I wasn't going to fix the immediate problems that face us today. And climate change really drove me to be interested in what is our nation's biggest source of clean electricity, and that's nuclear power. So I went into graduate school in nuclear engineering. And you say this was in Chicago, right? This is yeah, that's right. the place of the nuclear chain reaction, if you will, right? It's like almost on the day, 80 years ago, that Enrico Fermi built his pile there. I think it was called just a Chicago pile. Chicago pile one. That's exactly. correct. <laughs> and I chose the University of Chicago in part because of that. In high school, I was really excited about all kinds of physics. And I was able to see a nuclear research reactor as a high school student for the first time. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I read the Making of the Atomic Bomb, which is by Richard Rhodes. It's a really good yeah. book, and it talks about this project and everything that came after it. And I thought, oh, man, the University of Chicago sounds like a great place to go to college. <laughs> I heard, Katie, and, and you know this much better than I, of course, like I would expect there to be like this monument, right? This is where nuclear energy started, right? But I don't think that's the case at all, right? Am I right? Or So there is a little statue, and I'll tweet a picture of me with it later, but it's not what you would think. It's actually, it's an interesting art piece. It does have a plaque that says on this site, you know, on December 2nd, 1942, the first man-made fission chain reaction was accomplished. And the statue, it looks, depending on where you stand, either like a mushroom cloud or like a skull. And so it's it's a very political statement on what was accomplished there. And I think it ignores... The one part that excites me, which is the peaceful part of nuclear energy. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I think you have a presentation on your screen. So if you can please share your screen, we can start with your presentation. So I'm going to talk today about 
what we're doing in the Office of Nuclear Energy, what the United States Biden-Harris administration sees as the future of nuclear energy, where we're putting our money, and namely where our mouth is, on nuclear energy. So there's a lot going on in my office. I'm really lucky to have an incredible staff in the Office of Nuclear Energy. And in the United States, of course, we have resources at our national laboratories and universities and companies that make all of my mission possible. So we help those entities really make the dream happen. So our key, and I'll talk through this in terms of our priorities. Our biggest priority in the United States with regard to nuclear is to keep safely running existing nuclear power plants open and operating. And today that really represents our baseload electricity generation. Not just that, uh, in the United States, Nuclear power is about 20% of our electricity generation total, and it is about half of our carbon-free electricity generation, right? And so it is a completely essential part of our power system in the United States. It provides 24-7 baseload electricity. In a nuclear reactor, you only have to refuel it once every 18 or 24 months uh, in a standard light water reactor. And this means that it can just be on, running in full power all the time. They very rarely turn off unexpectedly. When they do so, it's because of some automatic safety, safety trip or uh, some operational need. And it's pretty rare. So we can rely on them to be on pretty much all the time. And this can be great backup for the variable sources of electricity that are on the grid. And, you know, it, it, can, be a, it can be a real boon to our resilience. Now, as we look toward a future of keeping those existing plants open, you know, they aren't going to always be as economically successful as they are today, right? As we see increased penetration of variable renewable energy sources that are getting cheaper and cheaper, which is great for the climate, we'll see a need for nuclear power to make room for them. And there are a lot of ways for existing nuclear power plants to do that. We do see the existing light water reactors, those large gigawatt scale plants, of which there are 92 operating in the United States. Next year, there will be at least 93, possibly 94, depending on how quickly we turn on the Vogel units three and four. Those large light water reactors don't just produce electricity, right? Nuclear reactors are fundamentally a complicated way to boil water, a lot like coal, burn coal, you boil water, you create steam, you turn a turbine. In nuclear, you split atoms, right? It's a much cleaner process, more complicated, but cleaner. You boil water, you turn a turbine, uh, and that makes electricity. But you could skip that turning a turbine part and use that heat directly. And actually, three megawatts thermal is what it takes to create one megawatt electric. And so you can get some really impressive efficiencies out of directly using the heat from nuclear reactors. Large light water reactors have fairly low grade heat, but they can still be used for things like desalination or some hydrogen applications, either low or even high temperature electrolysis can be made more efficient by some incorporating some of the heat from existing light water reactors. And in addition to keeping those existing plants open, we'd like to see small modular and advanced reactors and, and whatnot sort of come into this. And we'll talk about that in the later priorities. But I think a couple of key components that I'd like to talk about in terms of this future is a couple of projects. We have flexible electricity generation happening all the time at our nuclear power plants, uh, but only in the tiniest possible realm. So sometimes they can ramp up and down if they really need to on the grid. 
it's not very efficient to lower the power of a nuclear power plant because, you know, it could be running at 100% power. So taking electrons on the grid, off the grid doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you could store that power, for example, in hydrogen, sorry, uh, in a medium like hydrogen, then you can have a little bit more flexible energy storage. And we're demonstrating that at four plants across the country in the United States through some cost-shared efforts with the Department of Energy. My office and the Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office have paired together with a few of the utilities around the country to demonstrate that you could offload some of the electricity and in at least one case, heat, to use it when the sun is shining to create hydrogen instead. We're looking forward to that future for our existing reactors, but also for advanced reactors, which can create even higher grade heat, more appropriate for direct industrial applications, higher grade heat appropriate for really high temperature hydrogen production and advanced reactors that can be more flexible in their electricity, electricity generation. There are a few things that we've done in terms of dollars into this endeavor this year. The bipartisan infrastructure law implemented the Civil Nuclear Credit Program. Its goal is to prevent premature retirements of existing commercial nuclear power plants by helping make them, give them a little boost to reflect the fact that they haven't been rewarded for their clean energy contributions and are struggling in certain markets that make it hard for them to compete with low cost variable fossil fuels that are like, you know, natural gas, for example. Credits are then allocated to plants that can demonstrate that they have a shortfall economically. And this allows us, and as the government, to say, we don't want these incredible assets to be shut down just because they're not economically competitive on particular markets. And there's $6 billion in that fund, and each year, $1.2 billion is appropriated. Uh, the first round of these awards was actually just made uh, this year and has is a component of helping the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plants stay open. We expect to have future rounds that are eligible for more plants and it'll probably be distributed a little bit more evenly. But that $6 billion should keep some of this, these economically struggling nuclear power plants open. Another thing that we're trying to do through tax incentives in this administration is through the Inflation Reduction Act, we have a production tax credit for existing nuclear power plants. And this applies to any plants that are in service before 2024. This is when the credit starts. And they'll receive the credit through 2032. And this allows them to get 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour if they are paying their workers fairly, which nuclear power plants generally do. They're generally highly paid craftspeople who run these plants. If they don't meet those requirements, they still get the tax credits, but it's very small. We do expect this tax credit to be straightforward to achieve with that wage and apprenticeship requirement piece for all the nuclear plants in the country, but it'll be indexed to $2023. So what that means is that they get an extra $15 a megawatt hour, 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour for almost a decade, right? Between 2024 and 2032. And that really changes the game for some of the nuclear power plants that are on the edge of considering retirement. This will at least keep them open through 2032, which helps us contribute to that sort of 2035 goal to really get to a zero electric grid. Now, it's also the case that if the power price received rises above $25 a megawatt hour, then they're, they're not going to make an extra profit off this tax credit beyond $25 a megawatt hour. So we're trying to keep 
costs low for the American consumer by letting it gradually drop down if they're making a serious profit. All right. Our next priority is building advanced reactors. And there's a lot of advanced reactors out there. And in my office, what we focus on is enabling research and development that can support the the demonstration and deployment of those advanced reactors. We, through our national laboratory system and grants to universities, as well as companies, we support research in advanced fuels that are accident tolerant or like incredibly robust trisobarticles that are never not going to melt in any kind of perceivable accident sensors and instrumentation that really bring nuclear technology into the 21st century, modeling and simulation that reduce the amount of testing you have to do to get a reactor license, and the kinds of advanced 3D printing and materials manufacturing that can be leveraged to make reactors a little bit more modular when we build them. Ideally, we'd love to see reactors built more like airplanes and airports. And these more small modular reactors will really benefit from these advanced manufacturing materials, pieces of research. And advanced reactors are all over the size range. We have micro reactors, which we would generally categorize as small enough to fit on a truck and easily transportable to their location, generally between one and 20 megawatts electric. We have this sort of set of bounds in this slide, but we wouldn't really define these reactors by their size alone. They have characteristics that might put them in one or another category. And these are just sort of fuzzy bounds, but we generally see micro-reactor applications under 20 megawatts. We see small modular reactors as sort of that 20 to 300 megawatt scale that are going to be really appropriate for modular builds at grid scale. And then our large-scale reactors, which would be similar to the existing plants, gigawatt-scale reactors, for example, the AP-1000 is an advanced gigawatt-scale reactor that's being built here in the U.S. in other countries. You know, there are a few operating in China. There will be some operating soon in Poland. We just signed a deal with Westinghouse. And all of these reactors have a role to play. Micro-reactors might replace existing diesel uh, generators at resilient sort of critical infrastructure like hospitals or residential facilities that require constant backup power, military bases, lots of critical infrastructure or remote or austere locations could require a micro-reactor where they used to use diesel. Small modular reactors are great for potentially replacing coal plants. They're nicely sized for this plan of activity. And um, we have lots and lots of coal plants in the United States that are facing retirement as we look toward a clean energy transition. Whereas large-scale reactors, they can really hold the grid together. You know, we have 92 of these in the U.S. And like I said, it's almost 20% of our electricity. So you get a lot of bang for your buck. There's a bunch of these different reactors that we're supporting in my office and the other offices around the Department of Energy. Two reactors were rewarded to be demonstrated, commercially demonstrated this decade. The natrium reactor, which is a sodium-cooled, high-temperature, fast-neutron reactor, with a cool sort of clean molten salt storage system to allow more flexible uh, contributions to the grid. And the XC100 X-Energy high-temperature gas reactor. This reactor uses tristructuralized tropic fuels, which are extremely robust to accidents. It's a high-temperature gas that can get up to the many hundreds degrees Celsius. This high-quality heat can be used for a lot of activities. And they're each being built. Their first commercial plant at 50-50 cost share with the government. 
And those plants, those awards were made from my office. And now they've moved into the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, which has the infrastructure to support the sort of demonstration activities that are involved. The bipartisan infrastructure law also reduced the uncertainty for these projects by fully appropriating fully appropriating their $2.5 million price tag. There's another demonstration project that we're building commercially this year, sorry, this decade. My office is supporting in a smaller cost share percentage, the new scale reactor. So this is a small modular light water reactor design. So the other two are sort of advanced reactors with advanced coolants and fuels. The new scale reactor is much more like a shrunk down version of the existing light water reactors we're used to. It already has a design certification from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and we're building it out in Idaho in a six-pack. So the new steel company, along with its partners, will build six units, put them together in a six-pack, and connect it to the grid this decade. It's The first module should be connected to the grid by 2029. And this is what we're calling the Carbon-Free Power Project. And that project lives within my office. There's a whole lot of other advanced reactors we're supporting through our advanced reactor demonstration program. This includes risk reduction awardees like Kairos and Holtec and their SMR-160 and the Kairos fluorescent cooled high-temperature pebble bed. There's a salt reactor experiment in our 20 awardees. We have a lot going on. And... I won't go into all of them, but I'll just say there's a huge menu of reactors that'll start to be available in the 2030s for commercialization. But we're really focused on some of these demonstrations that'll be turning on in this decade. And those should be eligible for some of the new nuclear tax credits that have come through the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's an investment tax credit that should help um, reactor uh, vendors get investors because it helps with bonuses for meeting certain manufacturing requirements, and it should help with investments. And then there's a tax credit for the production of electricity once those reactors are built. If you can get a reactor built quickly enough before 2032, so like the Natrium or its energy reactors or the new scale CFPP carbon-free power project, these would all be eligible if they hit their timelines and milestones and these production tax credits are are tech neutral. So they apply to all clean energy technologies and include nuclear. So nuclear can get a bite of this apple too. I mentioned that there's a whole bunch of reactors on the horizon. And as we look out at this coming decade and a little bit further, we see a lot of reactors and test reactors and prototypes, micros and mediums. You've probably seen some of these names In the interest of time, I won't go through all of them, but I will sort of draw your eye to a couple of components. Down at the bottom, you see the dome test bed from the Nuclear Reactor Innovation Center and the Lotus test bed also from the Nuclear Reactor Innovation Center. And this is really exciting because these are containment buildings that should allow us to use, that we can use to let companies test their micro-reactor designs or test prototypes of their larger scale designs in a safe environment at Idaho National Laboratory. So I'm particularly excited about that. We're excited about the Marvel reactor, which will be a little demonstration of a tiny, many kilowatt scale reactor. All right, our next priority, so we've said we want to keep existing plants open, we want to build advanced reactor reactors, and then finally, we want to secure and sustain our fuel cycle. And this includes so much. It includes the front end of mining and converting and enriching and fabricating uranium into fuel. 
whether it's a metal fuel or a tristructural isotropic fuel or a standard uranium oxide fuel or even a liquid salt, all of that fuel needs to be sort of supported by a robust supply chain. And on the back end, we need to have a sustainable spent nuclear fuel management system. So my office is doing a lot in both areas. High assay, low enriched uranium is of particular interest right now to support those advanced reactors. And it's hard to get it anywhere but Russia. So we're working on helping to create a more sustainable, secure supply of that material. And on the back end, we've restarted what's called a consent-based siting approach for storage of spent nuclear fuel. The cool thing about this graph is actually, this is one of my favorite cartoons. It's called XKCD. I'm sure you've seen it. And it was one of my favorites from Randall Monroe in which... <laughs> It compares the energy density of different fuels, right? And the joke here is that uranium just has orders and orders and orders of magnitude higher energy density than the other fuels we're used to. You know, the amount of fuel that we look at in terms of our tiny little pinky is tons of coal, right? And so we really think about the way that that, when we deal with our our waste, right? It doesn't just go straight up into the air as carbon dioxide and effluent and other products. We end up with that same little pellet of fuel on the back end. It's a little more radioactive, quite a bit more radioactive, but we store it safely and we manage it responsibly. And right now my office is focused on finding ways to consolidate it so that the federal government's fully in charge of that fuel. We have other cross-cutting priorities in the nuclear energy industry. It's important for us that what has historically been a pretty white male dominated field is getting more diverse voices from underrepresented minorities and genders. And uh, we're really looking towards ways to champion this workforce. Uh, And we do this largely through university funding and increasingly a more expansive look at what it looks like to fund traineeships uh, in community colleges and whatnot. We're looking toward advancing environmental justice as we approach our consent-based siting for interim storage endeavors. For example, we're really focused on centering communities in the process of determining where to store this fuel. We have the same approach as we you know, talk to communities around the siting of our demonstration reactors and other endeavors. And we're really focused too on making sure that coal communities aren't left behind in this transition. And so we're really interested in seeing coal to nuclear transition that'll bring those communities along with the clean energy transition. Finally, we're really interested in jobs in this administration. The Biden administration cares about, you know, good paying clean energy jobs. And nuclear has a lot of those. It takes thousands of people to build a nuclear plant and hundreds of people to run it in most cases. And so we're really looking towards those fossil communities to be representative of some of the job savings that we can do in this transition so that, again, folks aren't left behind. And that's about it. So I'll stop talking. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Please don't hesitate to ask all the questions you possibly can. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Katie. Brilliant presentation. A lot of things here. I so I took a couple notes here. In, in the meantime, please feel free, everyone, to jump to the chat box and write up your, your questions. Um, you were showing a slide in the beginning on how we may utilize heat coming from a nuclear power plant and utilize heat for for the industry or maybe hydrogen production. Now, technically, this has been possible ever since these nuclear power plants were built, right? Why are we only now talking about this additional function, basically, 
why should we trust that this is actually going to happen finally? I think it's such a great question. So I think there are two things, right? One, electricity was the main focus of the market for the sort of years in which nuclear power plants were built. There was just a lot more money to be made in producing electrons for the grid. And there was no incentive to decarbonize the things that were so easy to do with fossil fuels, right? So those are your kind of two things, right? Is that like the market was for nuclear reactors really focused on electrons and fossil fuels were taking care of a lot of these direct heat applications. Both of those things change when you start to worry about the climate, right? The electric grid is not the only thing we have to decarbonize. Right. And so governments, including mine, are putting forth incentives to decarbonize other components of our electric grid. And companies that sort of see into that future in which more incentives hopefully will help us get to our 2050 net zero goals. Right. That it really changes the way that companies look at what's possible. And the second thing is, again, decarbonization fossil fuels will have to cease doing those things. So, you know, you used to not make money doing these direct heat things, and now you can, but also fossil fuels are going to have to go if they're unmitigated fossil fuels. And so I think we really are seeing the drive towards climate drive nuclear towards these other applications. And this may represent an alternative stream of income for the owners of nuclear power plants, I imagine, right? Yeah, for existing power plants, as we look at the changing markets on the electric grid, it's very helpful to watch. There are nuclear power plants that have experienced negative pricing moments, right, where they have to pay to put their electrons on the grid because it's costly to bring a power plant offline and then bring it online. It takes a while. And so you want to avoid doing that. So you just keep your power plant running. But if there's so many electrons on the grid, the grid operator might, as it has in Texas and other grids, say, we don't want your electrons. And in fact, if you want to put them on the grid, you're going to have to pay a fee. And that's crazy. They're paying to produce electricity. And you could avoid those negative pricing moments. You could even sort of avoid getting in the way of the sort of balance on the grid during, you know, when the sun is shining by being a little bit more flexible this way and and really make room for the renewables that we need. You were saying that nuclear energy is now mainly used for baseload production, right? This is electricity we need all the time for our fridges and keep lights on in offices at night, I guess, and and in hospitals and everything. So what kind of percentage are we talking about that is baseload when it comes to U.S. electricity mix? Yeah, so it really depends on the region, right? Some regions don't have a lot of renewable penetration, and so a lot of their electricity is pretty baseload. But you see, and you see different peaks and valleys, but basically in the morning, you have a little bit of a peak when people are both working at home. And in the evening, you have a little much bigger peak when people are both working at home. And in some regions, this can be doubling of the grid in the evening. We see things like the duck curve in California. It's fairly well understood where you see this peak shifting like an entire half of the grid from midday to the afternoon. That's what would be required in order to sort of meet what's needed. And unfortunately, the sun is shining in the middle of the day. And so if we could have some storage system that could very efficiently hold half the grid's worth of electricity for six hours to take it down to that 6 p.m. time frame, we'd be in the clear, right? If we had enough to hold that much grid power, that'd be great. But we generally don't have grid scale power storage at that level. And so 
that's sort of the shift that we're dealing with in this up and down. In some markets, it's quite large. Yeah. Could it be that it's about, I don't know what the percentages are here. Is it like 30% maybe roughly? Or so, yeah, roughly in most regions, it's probably that about 30%. Percent. Some it might be 10, some it might be half. It might be 50, right? Well, yeah. But then if we scale up nuclear, and I believe that is the plan, right? And currently we're at 20% in the electricity mix. We yeah. still use more nuclear power plants to actually just provide base load and not so much make it flexible to work well with renewables all the time, right? That's right. But you still have to replace all that natural gas, peaking plants. They're not carbon-free. You could carbon mitigate quite a lot. And generally speaking, we do sometimes use coal as a sort of smoother of some of this. And so, you know, we need to decarbonize all of that. And there's an opportunity there, right? Some of it can be done with renewables. But in our assessments, actually, in the United States, there's a great power. There's a great paper from the State Department and the White House that's about our pathways to net zero. So you can Google pathways to net zero, White House. And it shows very clearly that you could get away with just keeping about 90 to 100 gigawatts of nuclear on the grid if every other clean energy technology ramps to its maximum. But if it got, if any other technology doesn't quite meet those goals, you need up to twice as much nuclear as we currently have. And existing nuclear power plants do have retirements coming, some of them. And so we will have some replacement rate and we'll, we're going to need to build new nuclear. So my office is preparing for that sort of maximum amount to maximize decarbonization. And so we really look toward a doubling of nuclear power by 2050. Now you're talking about a replacement rate, whereas one of the priorities is to keep nuclear power plants open okay. as long as possible and extend. As long as possible. Right. But 2050 is a while from now and a lot of these plants are really aging. And while we expect that there will be a lot of lifetime extensions for the plants that are operating safely, perhaps you know, definitely into the 80-year lifetime period, but possibly into the hundreds, we can't expect that all plants will receive all lifetime extension requests from the NRC. And so we need to be prepared for some of those to shut down. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there any financial incentive to actually close down a nuclear power plant and maybe receive money for dismantling? So not exact. So yes and no. So the companies that do the decommissioning are waiting for that fund, but actually the NRC requires that the operators maintain a fund for decommissioning. And so it's already on the books, those dollars, right? This is, this is so that if there's a need to decommission, the money's already there. And so it does release dollars, but it doesn't generally release those dollars to the operator. It generally releases those dollars to a separate entity to which they sell the reactor and they allow them to do the decommissioning. Mm -hmm. Speaking about the path to net zero, so if I'm correct, the U.S. government has set the goal of a 50% reduction in carbon emissions by the end of the decade. Yes. And then additionally, like 100% clean energy by 2035. Yeah, clean and electricity 100% by 2035. Yes. And a net zero economy by 2050. So now carbon reduction can happen in many ways. Uh, phasing out coal and then bring on natural gas is one way of you know, reducing carbon emission, of course, choosing natural gas together with wind and solar has been happening. But 100% clean electricity by 2035 would require a lot of nuclear reactors, right? There will be more hydroelectric dams being built right now. So it's all... In fact, a few nuclear, nuclear hydro dams probably will go down. 
and so on. Yeah, exactly. But I don't believe the U.S. is in any way of actually meeting that goal by 2035, right? Because of the long time to get permits and to get the building done, the construction done. So how do we get there? Yeah, so the Biden administration's approach is to be as aggressive as possible with economic incentives because we've seen the American industry stand up an incredible amount of infrastructure when incentivized economically. And so we have these big carrots that we've sort of hung out there with the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. And some of our models indicate that we can get pretty close to some of these goals with this, but industry and private investors are going to have to step up. It is not going to be the government dollars alone that make this happen. We It can only happen if private investors also really step up and see this as a, as a need and get on board with our aggressive goals because they are so aggressive. As you know, right? Zero, like zero carbon on the electric grid by 2035 means that all natural gas is carbon mitigated or there's no natural gas at all. And all coal is replaced by a completely clean source. That's huge. It's hundreds of coal plants. It's thousands of natural gas turbines. It is so much. We are going to have to build as much as possible, as quickly as possible. I think nuclear's going to be ready because we are getting some of these demos built by the end of the decade. And they've got order books for the next like second, third, and fourth of a kind building up. So hopefully they won't just build one in 2030 and build one in 2035. They'll build one in 2030 and then six in 2031. And they'll be connecting them to the grid as these projects sort of get moving. Well, that's interesting to, to hear something like this indeed. Can we get something of a timeline? Like how many years would it take before the idea for a design mm-hmm. is, or for a reactor, if you will, gets approved? And then you need a license for construction. I think in the US, you need a license a to operate as well, right? So there, there yeah. are two different, different types of licenses here. Or are we expecting any change in regulation that it will actually be eased to actually open a nuclear power plant? What are the plans here? Yes, I think this is just such a fundamental and important question. I'm so glad you're asking it because, (laughs) so if you take the new scale reactor, which is the only small modular reactor with a design certification, it took 42 months from them submitting their application to the NRC to getting their design certification. And that was the NRC's fastest conceivable process. They had support from Congress to work to streamline some of their processes New Scale had been well-researched for almost a decade before they submitted that application. And so this is an indication that it takes a while. I think the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is serious about streamlining their processes. But And I won't speak for the NRC, but the theme that I've seen out of them is that they'd like to sort of lower the barrier, but not the standards, right? They'd like to simplify their processes and make more agile the way they do the evaluations, but not change the regulations in particular. They don't want to lower the standards for which the United States is so trusted. Okay, so this is the stage of application for getting something licensed, right? right? Construction takes a long time too. Look at Vogel, right? It took a decade to build these plants, plants that were built in a much shorter timeline in another nation, exactly the same plant. We have real challenges building things, complex, big engineering things on time and on budget, whether it's a train station or a nuclear power plant. I mean, the same is true here in the Netherlands, where I am based. We're very lousy at that, really, far over budget, far over any time prognose. Yeah. So, but how can that be changed? Probably by doing it, right? Because once you get experience, it'll probably be a bit easier the next time. But the thing here is that you'll have to do the same thing 
twice and then another another time and another time. Because if you keep changing the reactors and keep changing the construction plan, I guess you're back at zero, right? That's right. And I think we have seen that that works in other nations. Like South Korea actually has a really good track record with building things on time and on budget and low cost for nuclear. And they do so by building the exact same plan in pairs. They've done a great job doing this. There's a great paper Jess Colovering wrote some many years ago about this. And there's there's just a, a ton to learn from nations that have done this well. We also think that this sort of more modular approach with smaller units should reduce the complexity of on-site build and reduce the number of people that need to be on site stick building these reactors. But if that's a proven recipe, right, to get nuclear built faster, shouldn't the US say, well, let's build dozens of the same reactor over and over again, and that's the way to do it. What I hear is instead, we're looking at all these advanced reactors that are new to build. The regulator doesn't know how to deal with accident-tolerant fuels and all this stuff, because the regulation is not focused Mm -hmm. on any of that, because the regulation is still probably had been written in a time when we weren't looking at uh, sodium or natrium, what was it again? Yeah. So... There is a tension here, right? Am I seeing this right? Or I think you have a very good point. I think it is certainly the case that I would love to see 50 to 100 new scale reactors built. And I expect that those would be followed by 50 to 100 terapowers or X-Energies. I think we can manage as a, as a society a couple different designs, but I would like a few of those companies to find a way to really maximize a single success and turn it into nth of a kind. And the United States government is not generally in the business of picking winners, right? It's sort of critically important that we allow our private industry to find solutions that make sense economically and to move forward with those. So all we can do is really, all we should do is really incentivize what we want to see. And so we're trying to incentivize the ends rather than the means. And so, you know, if many companies can achieve the same decarbonization goals, we want to support them until they filter themselves out. Mm-hmm. Let's see, I have a question here coming from Richard Ointon. So in the early 1970s, the U.S. added 5 gigawatts of nuclear per year to its grid. China plans to add 15 gigawatts per year to its grid. I think they're building, like, it plans to build 150 nuclear power plants, right, in the next 15 years. This is probably more or less what is needed in order to achieve climate goals. The U.S., where now nuclear production is stable or even dropping, the U.S. wants to decarbonize as possible. Does the U.S. have any plans available to match its old rate of nuclear build-out? And can it ever match China's? I don't know if we can ever match China's. It's an incredibly aggressive pace that China has adopted. But what I will say is, you're right. Between 1970 and 1990, the United States deployed 95 gigawatts electric of nuclear power. That is more than we currently have on the grid today, right? And that was a 20-year time period, right? We did it. And we did it with gigawatt scale plants, a variety of different designs, actually, but mostly just light water reactors in the near gigawatt scale. Okay, And it was a different time then from a regulatory and permitting perspective, from an OSHA perspective. It was a different time. But we have a few more years than 20 years. We don't have a lot more years, but I think if we want to get to net zero, that 2050 goal, I think, is possible if we really ramp up the amount of nuclear power that we build. And if we do it more efficiently, if we build them more modularly, if those small modular reactors are being assembled on site 
rather than built on site, right? If they're modularly constructed at a factory and just assembled when they arrive rather than sort of built bespoke every single time, like we have been doing with our gigawatt scale reactors, I think we will gain efficiencies in modular construction and hopefully economics once we get to the end of a kind of many of these. That's where I hang my hopes, is that some of these companies that are proposing smaller, more modular designs really do see a future of economies of scale and economies of construction speed. So that's where my hope lies. But I also, my hope also lies in the fact that we have done this before. And we have about, you know, 27 years between now and 2050. And so that decarbonization goal feels a little more possible. Now that zero electricity by 2035, I also am a little concerned that we're going to have to work a little faster than we currently are to get there. So here's another question. How do we reduce the permitting time to our new smaller industrial scale nuclear facilities? Because we touched upon that some of it already, um, but this is speaking about a new application, basically, where regulation may just be lacking or falling short. Yeah, I'm really lucky that my office gets to focus on the fun research and development and demonstration and deployment, and that the Independent Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to worry about these questions around permitting. But we in the Department of Energy support NRC by doing research and development that help them ask questions. And every day, NRC has more ammunition in their pocket when they want to answer a question because of the research we're doing in my office. And I think that helps, first of all, that NRC is more equipped every minute every hour than it was the hour before by the data produced by our national laboratories, by our companies and universities. So that's one thing. Another is that I think as we look towards this modular construction, we can imagine, and I won't speak for the NRC, but I understand this is something they're looking into. We can imagine a scenario in which the NRC does some of their licensing processes on site at the factory that they might've otherwise done on site at the construction site. And I think that could live some efficiencies for that construction operating permanent endeavor. Now, we know we have a, a group of smart people watching this right now. Not everybody, but some of them will be investors. They may be very keen on hearing what kind of regulations, what, what changes are upcoming, just so they can be aware of it. What is it that you can say about this? So in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they are looking at something called Part 53, which is a licensing process that's targeted advanced reactors. And I'll be quite frank, it's gone a little more slowly than the NRC intended to get this like sort of rulemaking out. But my understanding, it sort of may be promising for some of the reactors that are going to be ready in the 2030s. But a lot of the reactors that are being licensed for build this decade are focusing on the existing licensing pathways and are finding some successes. I think it's a very promising thing. We've got a small modular reactor with a design certification, and there's a bunch in the NRC's hopper. I think it makes sense to invest in the technologies that have a pathway to licensing, and that includes all reactor technologies because the NRC is sort of has proven that they can license an advanced small, a small modular reactor, at least a light water one. I think we get to see the NRC successfully license a non-light water advanced reactor in this decade, but I think it's coming. And I think with these demonstration reactors that are going to be commercialized and turning turning on this decade with natrium and X energy, the DOE is behind them by making sure that data is available and, and helping to work uh, with that company as it applies for the NRC licenses mm-hmm. that only. I'm just 
curious, what, what kind of message do you think it'll send to the public and to the industry when we're looking at new ways of producing nuclear energy with these advanced reactors? Just by calling them advanced reactors, I guess we kind of imply that the old ones are not so advanced. We're talking about accident-tolerant uh, fuels, right? Sort of implying that what we're currently doing is probably not not so well-designed and you know may lead to accidents. I'm just curious to hear, what's, what do you think people will then think? Maybe we should close down those older nuclear reactors and choose the safer ones. It's tricky messaging, right? How do you talk about improvements in safety and efficiency on a technology that's already quite safe and efficient when you get down to brass tacks and numbers, when you talk about deaths per terawatt hour? Nuclear is way at the bottom of the list, right? It is below most renewables and it's like everything except for geothermal, right? This is not well perceived by the public. And so it does make it hard when we want to sort of thread that needle and say, like, we are at the bleeding edge of technology here. We have learned for decades about how to run these reactors. And this is a technology that is 80 years old. As we said, right, the first human determined fission chain reaction happened 80 years ago, almost today. And that 80 years has been incredibly productive. But these technologies have advanced. We've learned a lot from operating them. You know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of operational hours gone into these things. And I think we really, we need to be able to maximize the fact that we have improved these technologies so that they're very much walk away and passively safe, which is distinct from some of our predecessors, uh, while simultaneously not undermining the fact that existing nuclear reactors run very safely. So it's tricky. It does require people asking exactly this question and having this conversation and some recognition of the numbers. I'm actually really excited as a former professor, I'm excited about the new generation who are very numerate, right? They're very comfortable with analyzing things from a metrics perspective. I think they've got really good education in their backgrounds. They're good at Googling stuff and diving deep on Wikipedia and they, they will get to the data. And I think that really helps. If anyone wants to ask more questions, please use the chat function. We were talking about new reactors, and I'm thinking these reactors will probably be at a new site where currently there is no nuclear facility, right? Whereas I think the strategy before had been, well, we're going to expand the, the places where we have a nuclear site already, and we're going to add one or two more units to them. Community kind of knows over time, they're aware of the nuclear facility already. Finding new sites for a nuclear facility in Europe, it's tricky, I know. Will it be any different in the U.S.? Where communities so, will be shouting hooray when there are ideas for even a small modular reaction? Yeah. I So I mentioned a couple of times and didn't really go into depth, this like cold nuclear transition that we really envisioned. And you can go, my office recently published a report on how many of the coal plants in the United States would be suitable sites for nuclear reactors. And I think that's where we have a lot of promise and where we're seeing utilities really interested. These are sites that are typically utility owned, that are typically connected to high voltage power lines. They have skilled craftspeople who have jobs at those plants. The kinds of people who need to work at nuclear power plants are really similar to the kinds of people who need to work at coal plants. You've got union boilermakers and welders and electricians and like folks who are turbine maintenance engineers, right? You need all of those people in a nuclear power plant too. And they are going to want jobs when that coal plant is decommissioned for a clean energy transition. 
And a nuclear reactor is a really natural replacement for those coal plants. And I really expect to see a lot of coal plants sites apply for site licenses for small modular nuclear reactor deployments. I expect those communities to be very excited about those job opportunities and the transition from coal to nuclear. If we do our job right and communicate with them about what the ups and downs are of being such a community. But I think the utilities also really see promise there. Unions that sort of that represent those communities and the jobs in those communities are very positive about this possibility. And there's a lot of investment potential because you reduce the cost by 15 to 35% when you do something like this, because you can leverage that high voltage power line. You don't have to site a new high voltage power line, et cetera, right? You don't have to site new cooling water, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. So I, I think coal to nuclear is really promising. But I also do think that some small modular nuclear reactors might be sited alongside existing gigawatt scale plants that are owned by nuclear utilities, familiar with the field, and potentially existing gigawatt scale plants that have already been decommissioned. Some of those locations are still owned, again, by those utilities and might be promising sites for future nuclear. There's one final question here coming from Mark Nelson, and then we'll have to wrap up. Enrichment costs are skyrocketing. What is the fastest path towards the U.S. having an answer? I'm so glad you've asked this question. My office and and NNSA in the Department of Energy have developed a uranium strategy. We would like to, when we are working with Congress, to identify the resources we will need to execute that uranium strategy. And the uranium strategy is just to provide a small amount of long-term offtake agreements for enrichers interested in citing conversion and enrichment facilities or expanding conversion capacity and expanding enrichment capacity in the United States. We currently only have one commercial scale enrichment facility and one currently not operating conversion facility in the United States. And we have the largest fleet in the world. It's hungry. It's nearly 20% of the reactors on the planet. And they need enrichment, not just for advanced reactors, which require even more enrichment than that, but existing reactors are in need of enriched material, and we can no longer trust all of the sources of enriched material that we have historically trusted. Some of our material does come from Russia, and that's a that's a weakness in our supply chain that we need to be ready to bolster. So we're working with Congress to identify the funds necessary to execute some long-term off- offtake agreements. We'll have to wrap up now. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you and hearing your insights and your candid take on all things nuclear. Thanks everyone for joining this session and participating. Please stay updated on other interviews and panels we're doing over here at Climate Transformed, not just during this two-day climate event with lots and lots of interviews and panels on many, many topics, but also in the future going forward when we'll be doing more on nuclear energy. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you very much.